your Bible, if you would join me in Matthew 13 today, Matthew 13, verse 31. Let's read down to verse number 35. Matthew 13, verse 31. Our Lord is continuing in his teaching of the parables, and he says in verse 31, another parable put he forth unto them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in a field, in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge and the branches thereof, and other parables he spake unto them, the kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leavened. And all these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spake he not unto them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth, and parables I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Father, your word before us is like a treasure. This is, this is gold for us. This is joy. This is life. Uh, we, we come to you today because you are the king who is worthy of all the glory, and, and you are in need of nothing. Uh, we, we are the ones in desperate need of you, and so we pray that you would fill us, God, with the word of truth, the gospel of salvation and sanctification, that which brought us spiritual life is before us, and we pray that the engrafted word which is able to save will do that work today in the hearts of those who don't know Jesus Christ, that they might come and repent and confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. I pray that you would awaken the Christian who may be slumbering, they that maybe today are caught up in just a lot of things that the world can throw at them, and I pray that our eyes would be focused on things above, not on things below. Lord, you have made us citizens of heaven. We are on foreign soil on this earth, and may we live like that, and may we understand where our affections must lie. And so grip our hearts today, bring revival to our souls, cleanse us from within, make us clean children before you, then may our hearts be stirred with that truth that only you can give. We ask your blessing now in Jesus' name, and God's people said, Man, you may be seated this morning. When you study the Gospels, you quickly learn that central to everything that Jesus taught is the kingdom of heaven. John the Baptist was the Lord's forerunner, and his message begins in Matthew 3, verse 2, and he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus begins his public ministry, Matthew 4, 17, by saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All through the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord's focus was the kingdom. He starts out in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He concludes in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's all about the kingdom throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 8, 11, he talks about how there will be many one day who come from the east and west and will sit down in the kingdom of heaven uh, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Matthew 10, he sent the disciples out and told them, as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand meaning it is a present reality. It is available to you. 
Then we get to Matthew 13, and he begins to preach to them about the kingdom by using parables. The word parable means to lay down something next to something else. He would lay down a physical truth so that they could understand the spiritual reality. It's a earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And so in Matthew 13, there are seven specific parables that begin to unpack spiritual realities about the kingdom of heaven. In the beginning of each one of these parables, he would say, the kingdom of heaven is like. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like, in verse 31, a mustard seed. Verse 33, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. The kingdom of heaven, verse 44, is like a treasure hid in a field. And this goes on and on through each one of these seven parables. So the question I want to ask is, what is the kingdom of heaven? And to be honest, I had about a page and a half of notes last week I wanted to get to that I just literally cut out because I knew I didn't have time. And so I'll pick it back up today. So what is the kingdom of heaven and what do these two parables mean? And that's what I want to look at today. Now, first of all, what is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God? And you need to understand there are three aspects to the kingdom of heaven. And some people try to make a difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, but they're, they're, they're used interchangeably. There is no difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. Matthew's the only one who refers to it as the kingdom of heaven, and he does that because he w- doesn't want to offend the Jewish sensibilities. They would not use the name of God, and so he calls it the kingdom of heaven, so he doesn't offend them. But the the, uh, so the word heaven is a euphemism for the name of God. The word kingdom is basileia in the Greek, and it is a word that does not refer to a geographical territory, but rather refers to the rule or dominion of the king. And there's three ways, as I said, to understand this. First, in a general and broad sense, it speaks about God's rule over all things. And because he rules over all, his kingdom is overall. Psalms 103 verse 19 captures this when it says, the Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens and his kingdom ruleth over all. Aren't we thankful for that? Nebuchadnezzar repeated that reality in Daniel 4.3. A second aspect, a more narrow sense of his kingdom is the spiritual aspect of the kingdom of heaven. And so the kingdom of heaven speaks of those who have submitted to Christ as king and have trusted in him as their Lord and Savior. Those who have accepted the king are part of his kingdom. We learn from the previous parable that the seed was called by Christ the word of the kingdom. In the parallel account of Luke 8 verse 11, it says the seed is the word of God. So the word of God, the word of the kingdom is the gospel. When you receive the gospel, you become part of the kingdom. You are born again. In Luke 17 verse 20, uh, notice what the Pharisees are demanding of him because they could only understand it in a physical sense. And when he was demanded of the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God should come, he answered and said unto them, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation, neither shall you say, Lo, here or lo, there. For behold, the kingdom of God is where? It's within you. Isn't that amazing that the kingdom of God is inside of you? Because the king is inside of you. Jesus made clear that the way a person enters the kingdom is through repentance. That's why he and John the Baptist both declare repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we know in John 3 verse 3, he says, except a man be 
born again, he cannot see the what? The kingdom of God. And so there's the first two aspects of the kingdom. It is, in general, he rules over all. The second aspect of the kingdom is in the spiritual sense. Those who become children of the king are part of his kingdom and, and, and will one day rule and reign with Christ. And the third aspect of the kingdom, you need to understand, is in a literal physical sense. And, 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 and this is what the Jewish people were expecting. They were awaiting their long-awaited Mashiach. They called him, which would be the term we use for Messiah. The Greek rendering of that is Christos, where we get the English word Christ from. So to call Jesus, Christ is not his last name. Christ is the messianic title given to Christ. Jesus, Savior, Christ, Messiah would be the idea there. So the Bible is clear that one day Christ will set his kingdom up on the earth. It will be physical, visible. All sin will be removed. God's promises will be fulfilled. He will sit on the throne of David as king over all. The Bible speaks of this consistently. Daniel 2.44 says, In the days of these kings, and this is a prophetic vision of the future from Daniel, he said, Shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Isn't that good news? You look across the world, you get a headache. You look in the Bible, you get sedated for the pain of that, right? You're like, praise God. Zechariah 14, 9, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth, and that day shall there be one Lord and his name one. Obadiah, Jeremiah, Psalms, I could continue on, but listen to Revelation eleven fifteen. This is really cons the consummation of this reality as you roll into the end apocalyptic book of Revelation. And it says, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign. How long? Forever and ever. Isn't that going to be a day that we're going to rejoice forever? It's like, who's going to, do we have to worry about voting machines in that day? There is a problem when you send out 50, like 1.5 million voting tablatures and you get back 2.5 million. I don't know if you saw that in the previous week. Uh, uh, our, our voting system is about as secure as our southern border right now. Don't get me started on that rabbit trail. Some of you say, chase the rabbit, preacher, chase the rabbit. But if you were to just read Revelation 20 through 22, <laughs> the temptation doesn't go away. I can see the bunny. But Revelation 20 through 22, uh, that, if, you, if you just spend some time this week reading that, that is the kingdom established. And what you see is there is a thousand-year millennial kingdom that Christ will set up on this earth at the end of the seven-year tribulation. And, and the Bible tells us we will rule and reign with Christ. Revelation 5.10 says, And has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Bill Gates won't be in charge in that day. You know, there won't be any Biden or Trump or Putin or anybody else. It'll be Christ Jesus as king, and you will rule and reign with him. Isn't that incredible? But before the physical kingdom comes, the kingdom of the Lord comes in two ways. First, the kingdom of God comes in the salvation of souls. When anybody receives the king, the message of the king, the kingdom has come to that soul. 
The second way the kingdom of God is being established in the world right now is when a believer repents and gets right, God's rule is again reigning in their life. Submitting to his rule is allowing his kingdom to reign in your life. So the kingdom of God, first of all, is in a broad sense overall. Secondly, in a spiritual sense, it speaks of those who've trusted in Christ. They will be part of God's eternal kingdom. And thirdly, there will be a literal physical kingdom set up on the earth where the lion will lay down with the lamb. Peace will be worldwide. There will be no wars. What a day that will be. And that physical kingdom of Revelation 20 will roll into the eternal kingdom of Revelation 21 and 2. So in these parables, Jesus is highlighting the spiritual aspect of the kingdom that will culminate in a physical, glorious, and eternal kingdom. But you must receive the gospel seed in your life to be part of that kingdom. You need to understand you're going to live somewhere forever. You're either part of God's kingdom or you're part of the enemy's kingdom. A kingdom of light or the kingdom of dark. Now, before we jump into the meaning of these two parables, we must first understand the context of the past two parables so that you can understand these next two. The first parable was the parable of the sower. He talked about four different soils that the gospel seed will be sown upon. He talked about hard soil, those who would be hard to the gospel. They wouldn't receive it. Stony soil, which talked about shallow-hearted people that had no lasting fruit or lasting salvation. They weren't genuinely saved. The third was a thorny soil. That was a heart filled with other things. They did not truly repent, uproot the cares and the lust of this world. So they choked out the gospel seed and it never bore lasting fruit or never evidenced true salvation. And then he gives us three soils that did produce fruit, which was on the good soil. It was tilled up. The seed went deep. It was purged of the bad influences and it brought forth incredible fruit, 30 fold, 60 fold and 100 fold. And the point that Jesus makes here is many will hear, but few will really understand and be saved. Many will make professions, but only a few will really possess the true gospel and salvation. Uh, Haven't we seen that in the world? Hey, so-and-so got saved. Where have they been the last two years? That's what he's talking about. Well, I know my child prayed when they were eight years old, but you know, I know they've been away for 20 years, but, but I knew they were sincere back then. They could be sincere, but listen, the Bible tells us true salvation produces true fruit. 30, 60, and 100-fold, 8-fold was a gr- really good harvest. 30-fold was four times better than what their good harvest would have been. He's saying even the least Christian is going to be productive. Jesus is making it very clear he is not preaching easy Christianity. This is, this is not Americanized, culturalized Christianity. This is the, this is the call of God. Uh, and so this parable answers, why are there so many professing Christians that don't last? That's what this parable answers. Why are there many who call Jesus Lord, but do not, do, do not live for him? That's Matthew 7, 21 through 24. He answers it there. The second parable is the wheat and tares. You have two sowers, now two seeds. Christ plants the good seed, Satan plants the bad seed, and the tares resemble the wheat. And here Jesus is talking about there will be the enemy, Satan, who will bring in false teaching, false teachers and preachers that will deceive many. And and so uh, this answers the question, why are there so many false religions, false cults, and all these other things going on around the world? And it's because the enemy hath done this, Jesus said. The enemy has sown this seed. And how should God's people respond? Well, the Jews, you need to understand this. 
He's not, he's not talking to us today as though we were, this isn't, this isn't Americanized Christianity. Their mindset did not understand like the last 2,000 years that we've seen it. They were expecting a Messiah to usher in a physical kingdom. Therefore, you kill the enemies. You crush them. You destroy them. We see that with James and John, don't we? When Samaria would not let them journey through, what did they say? Let's pray for them. Is that what they said? They said, Lord, burn them down. No compassion there, right? I kill them all. I mean, and, 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 and what did Jesus say in Luke 9? He says, he rebuked him. He said, you don't know what manner of spirit you are. The Son of Man did not come to destroy man's life, but to save it. God didn't send his world into, to the world to condemn it, but to save the world, because the world's condemned already. This is a rescue mission. And so the parable reveals the level of spiritual deception that will go on in the world, but also that this is not the time for us to, uh, this is not the time of judgment. This is a time of preaching the gospel, spreading the seed, and bringing people into the kingdom. The, the world, as we said, is not the enemy, they're the mission field. Now, the next question on the minds of the disciples because this parable answers why are there false religions. It exposes the reality of Satan's religious activity to imitate Christ and Christianity. And you need to understand the next question that would have been on the minds of the disciples would be if three-fourths of the soils are bad, if Satan is actively planting bad seed in the field along with the good seed, does that mean that the kingdom is going to be small, insignificant? Will the, will the Messiah's kingdom make any real impact in the world? I mean, it would be easy for the disciples to feel defeated like there would be a very small impact. And what these next two parables do is they show the impact and influence of God's kingdom that will come on this world. So as that is the introduction to these next two thoughts, secondly, let's look at the parable of the mustard seed. And he says here in verse 31, another parable put he forth unto them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. Uh, a mustard seed is a very small seed. Jesus referred to it as the least of all seeds. The word least there is micros in the Greek, meaning the smallest of the seeds. Some Bible critics will say at this point, see the Bible is not infallible. It cannot be trusted because there are in fact smaller seeds than that. So that being the case, we need to close our Bible and give up Christianity. So what's the answer? And you're like, you better tell us. All you do is have to simply study it out and you learn that Jesus was not talking about every seed that has ever been created on the planet. In Matthew 13, 32, notice what he says here. He is referring, he says, which indeed is the least of all seeds, when it is grown, it becomes the greatest among herbs. He's not talking about weeds and all the other little seeds that can grow up bad vegetation. He's referring to garden vegetable seeds, not wild plants. Dr. L.H. Shiners, director of uh, the herbarium at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, he also lectures at the Smithsonian Institute. He stated the only modern crop plant in existence with smaller seeds than a mustard is tobacco. And this plant of American origin was not grown in the old world until the 16th century or later. So Jesus is in fact 100% accurate. The only seed they would have known, the smallest seed in Palestine that was used for gardening was the mustard seed. So again, the critics are on their faces. The mustard seed is indeed the smallest. 
verse 32, he says, But when it has grown, it becomes the greatest of herbs and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in its branches. And so the Lord here shows how the tiniest of garden seeds would turn and produce the largest garden plant, the smallest seed producing the biggest plant in the garden. The mustard seed could produce a bush that would grow 10 to 12 feet tall, sometimes even up to 15 feet tall, with a diameter of its uh, branch spread over 15 feet wide. That is a large garden plant. One of the Talmudists described the mustard plant as a tree of which the wood was sufficient to cover potter's sheds in those days. Now, what does this parable mean? Well, the parable points to the small beginnings of the work of Christ that look so insignificant but will grow to the greatest among all others in its vastness and size. And this was so important to encourage the disciples who at this point were feeling pretty dejected as followers of Christ. At this point, they were about two and a half years deep into following Jesus, and there was just a lot of things going against them. He, Jesus, if you remember back in chapter 11 and 12, begins to like preach judgment on the cities of Capernaum, Bethsaida, and the other cities because they were not repenting. Uh, he was feeding large groups of people, and only a handful full would stay and follow uh, that were really followers of Christ. Uh, it's, it's an amazing thing that um, at the end of his ministry, uh, there were only at the ascension, when you read in, in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, at the ascension of Christ, there were only 500 people out on that hillside. And when you get to Acts chapter number 1, there's only 120 committed disciples still remaining. I mean, you're thinking, this, this is a mustard seed. This is embarrassing. I mean, you imagine spending three years in your church plant at the end of three years after having the miracle power, after having the greatest preacher in the world, you have a church of 120? I mean, Lighthouse was running, pushing 200 people by the end of a year. But I can tell you that that small seed that was invested there, uh, it hit a growth spurt in Acts 2 as it germinated, right? <laughs> can you imagine? Like in Acts 1, you remember when, when Jesus is getting ready to ascend? They're like, Jesus, at this time, are you going to like restore the kingdom to Israel? Like, not one of us would have said that. We're Gentiles, right? None of us would say that. None of us would say, Jesus, or at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? We would not one person ever in this room would think about saying that. We, we, haven't even, we, we, we don't even conceptualize that thought. We would say, like, when are you going to come back? When are you going to take us to heaven? When are you going to, but, but when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? What? What are you talking about? And Jesus said, it's not in... You know, it's not in, in, in the power to, uh, it's not up to you to know when that is. Um, uh, the Father has reserved that for himself. He said, just go spread the seed. Start in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. You go spread the seed, you do the work. And in Acts 2, when, that, when, that Holy, when the Holy Spirit came down upon them, Peter preached and, and the word of God went out. It says in Acts 2.41, then they that gladly received his word were baptized the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. That's a big that's a big boost, isn't it? You go from 120 to 3,000, you're like, yeah, that was a pretty good day at church. I mean, that, was a, that was an exceptional service. Um, where are we going to have service at next week, right? 
Acts 2.47, praising God, having favor with the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should or were being saved. Acts 4.4, the number of the men was about 5,000 by the time you get to Acts 4. And that's just the men. Acts 5.14, the believers were the more added to the church multitudes. Now it went from addition to multiplication. Acts 6, 7, the word of God increased, the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem Jerusalem greatly. Great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. This is explosive. This is like Satan thought he had the victory, and all of a sudden the tree is exploding out of the garden. Acts 9, 31, then the churches had a rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. Remember, they started in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and other most parts of the earth. It was spreading and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Ghost. They were multiplied just continue to spread. Acts 17, 6, and when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren under the rules of the city and said, these are they that have turned the world upside down or come hither also. I mean, the impact was incredible. By the year 350 AD, Christianity exploded from 120 believers in Acts, uh, Acts chapter 1 in the upper room to in 30 AD to an estimated 33 million believers by the year 350 AD. That's an average of 106,000 people saved year after year for 310 years. I mean, that is, that is unbelievable explosion. How do you explain that when you have a crucified Savior? The only way you explain that is because He came back to life. I remember the small beginnings of the church here. Um, did anybody here was in the uh, Holiday Inn with us? Do we have that picture uh, of the old? This is, this is the beginning. Uh, good that it's kind of blurry because my little chubby face. I don't even know if I had hair on my face back then. Um, you know, there's Eric, and this is Gavin. He, he's a youth guy from our church in Chillicothe. And uh, Dan York, he, he spent, he lived with us for a while. And then his brother went and started a church up in Columbus. And and uh, he's still in the ministry. Those guys are doing good. But we started with eight people. Uh, five of those were me and my wife and three kids, and then Eric and Ashley uh, and Gavin Anderson. That's a pretty, pretty youthful group there. Uh, we had about 25 of us that were meeting during the first few Wednesday nights. We moved here that summer of 09. Our nursery met in the first floor of a rented Holiday Inn hotel room. Sometimes they would put us on the second floor. So if you came in, it's like, where's the nursery at? You got to go down the hall, go up the elevator. It's like the third room on the right there. Hopefully it's a non-smoking room. Sometimes it wasn't. People smoked in it the night before. Then God opened up the door for us to move to the Green County Fairgrounds. I think maybe we got that picture there. Uh, So we we went from the Holiday Inn to the Fairgrounds, met out there for a year. We upgraded the kids from meeting in a uh, hotel room to a pig barn and... uh, (laughs) I think we got a picture of the kids. In, yeah, there we go. Um, and I, I remember cleaning up some stuff off the floor through those hallways and just cleaning it out and making as uh, potpourri as, as good. Uh, God continued to grow that church. And a work that started with eight people from one city is now bringing people from over 25, close to 30 cities now that are driving in. And uh, there was times we had to meet outside. That's a picture. We didn't have any place to meet. We just met out in the field. Uh, And then today, I think there was maybe one more picture. That was our 10-year anniversary. And praise God, this is an early service. You know, we always have more typically in our late service. Uh, We have, God has allowed us to see this building filled up Sunday after Sunday. Multiple services were totally packed out in our classrooms on Wednesdays and Sundays. And, And isn't God good? Praise God for that. 
And today I just want to say this. Maybe today you feel like you're not able to do a lot, that you want to reach others with the gospel, but, but you don't always see a lot happening. I want you to know this. Don't give up. Stay faithful. You may not feel like your witness to your family is making an impact. Stay faithful to that. You may feel like your witness to your coworkers not making an impact. Continue to be faithful. You don't feel like your witness to those at school are making an impact. Stay faithful. Jesus ministered for three years, and at the end of it, he had a small little group of 120, and nobody was more of an impactful minister than Jesus Christ. But the power of that little seed exploded on the day of Pentecost, and they never would have expected the dynamic growth that it had. You need to understand, you must never give up. Keep praying. Keep sharing. Do you realize you're carrying the most powerful seed in the world in your mouth? And you can spread that every single day of your life. I would encourage you today to come and to plead with God on your knees to use your life. Say, God, take my life like a mustard seed and plant me where you would be glorified, that you would be honored with my life. This is the meaning of this parable, the advancement of the kingdom. Now, the next question people would ask is, what are the birds in the parable? The, the birds in the first parable were negative. It does not necessitate that they're evil in this parable. Just as a lion may signify Satan, it also can signify Christ. Also in the first parable, birds are enemies of the farmer. They ate his seeds, right? Obviously they're bad. You don't even have to get an explanation. It's like they're a nuisance, in the second parable, he calls the guy an enemy in, without even explaining the parable. An enemy at night came in and sowed bad seeds. It's clearly he's bad. Both of them were clearly bad representatives, people that were enemies. But here the birds are just nesting in the trees. They're, they're enjoying the benefit of the tree, in other words. There's nothing evil about that. It's important to understand those hearing this parable would have understood it not in light of a New Testament text, but in light of the Old Testament since they did not have a completed New Testament. They didn't have the New Testament at this time. All they knew, that they were looking at this through the lens of a Jewish person from an Old Testament perspective. So let me give you their perspective. Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's empire was seen as a tree that had grown up and Daniel gives the interpretation in Daniel 4, verse 10. Thus were the visions of my head in my bed. I saw, behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and the height thereof was great. The tree grew and was strong, and the height thereof reached unto heaven. He goes on in verse 12 and says, And the fowls of heaven dwelt in the bows thereof. And it says, And all flesh was fed of it. So the idea is that they all benefited from this great vast tree called Babylon in, Dan in, in Nebuchadnezzar's day in his kingdom. Daniel 4:20 uh, through 22, it goes on and says, And the tree that thou sawest, which grew and was strong, whose height reached from the clouds, the sight thereof into the earth, whose leaves were fair, the fruit much, uh, and in them was meat for all, under which the beast of the field dwelt, and upon whose the branches the fowls of the heaven had their habitation. And he begins to talk about it, and he says in verse 22, And reacheth unto heaven and thy dominion unto the end of the earth. Uh, it's talking about uh, the, the, the incredible impact that the, the, the Babylonian Empire would have, the, the, how it would stretch itself around the, that whole world of that day. Nebuchadnezzar's empire produced incredible blessings to people. Uh, 
the Babylonian Empire had brought unparalleled advancements in almost every field of endeavor, agricultural, architectural, education, the arts, literature, economics, and many others. Though they used a lot of slave labor and there were some negative things Babylon did, uh, there was incredible advancements in so many others. The birds in that parable refer, though, to the nations of the world who became beneficiaries of Babylon's success. Now, as a revelation to Ezekiel sees the uh, Assyrian empire like a shade tree offering protection as well. Ezekiel 31 verse 3 says, Behold, the Assyrian was a cedar in Lebanon and fair branches and with a shadowing shroud. He goes on in verse 5, Therefore his height was exalted above all trees of the field. Verse 6, All the fowls of heaven made their nest in his bows and under his branches and all the beasts of the field bring forth their young and under his shadow dwelt all great nations. It's the idea of a nation becoming so great that the other nations begin to come under the benefit of its shade. They begin to feed off the benefit of the glory of that tree. Don't you like a big tree, a shade tree in your yard? Don't you like when it can also produce fruit? Maybe not. Sometimes it gets in your way, but uh, the benefit of that. Ezekiel 17 is a prophecy of the coming Messiah, who the Bible calls a branch multiple times throughout the Old Testament. Ezekiel 17:22 says, Thus saith the Lord God, I will also take of the highest branch of the high cedar. He goes on and talks about, uh, this is referring to the Messiah, but verse 23 he says, And under it shall dwell all fowl of every wing, in the shadow of the branches thereof shall they dwell. And he's talking about the Messiah there, and I don't have time to go into all the details of Ezekiel 17, but the coming Messiah who will grow great and will bring in the benefit to, and it's talking about fowls and every winged animal will come and benefit. So the parallel seems very clear, doesn't it? I mean, if you're a Jew, you're not reading the New Testament, you're reading the Old Testament, and that's the only text that you have. And they would have compared that to what they understood of the tree comparisons in the Old Testament. It's important to know the great advancements of Christianity have brought incredible benefit and shade and blessing to the world. Do you know the idea of hospitals was created by Christians? You know why we have hospitals? It's because of Christianity. The emphasis of charity, especially toward the sick, the first hospital of which there is any record found is Fabiola, a Christian lady. It was a also later decreed beginning in the fourth century that for every church built, a corresponding hospital be built next to it. Today, many of the hospitals, they're called Baptist or Presbyterian, Catholic in origin or nature and even in name, aren't they? Good Samaritan. Where do you think they got that from? American history, Red Cross, all of these things, right? Think, think about if, if you removed hospital and care. Do you know back in the old world, in Rome and, and the Romans and Greeks, the only, the only people who got medical care were the upper class, and they would also provide medical care for their slaves, but the middle class got nothing. And Christians are the ones who stepped into that. Also, America's history built on the Judeo-Christian teachings. Think about what America has produced for its people and the shade it has given its people and others who've drank of its wealth versus India or China, or pagan religions in Africa. You know why India has like an 80 to 90% poverty rate? It's because of their false religion of Hinduism. And I don't have time to expound on that, but that is the root cause of it. Consider what Christianity has produced by way of educational standards, justice systems, dignity to women. You know, Christianity is responsible for the abol abolishing slavery. 
Christianity is what gave us our adoption systems. You know, in the Greek and Roman world, a father had the right to kill his child, and they saw that sometimes as a benevolent act. They would put a child outside and just let it die. Christians would come by, pick those babies up, and preserve them. And today, you have a whole liberal left wing of this culture who is 100% in on the abortion issue. That is a godless, satanic, evil kingdom motive. And you don't, that is not a political statement. That is a Bible statement. If your head's so caught up in politics, you need to disengage from the world because you must not be in the Word of God enough to understand that clear teaching. And I know that's a strong statement that I'm sure offended maybe somebody. But it, if there's anything we should get upset about, it shouldn't be the killing of little children. Christianity gave us our incredible history of music, art. Where did Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, Rembrandt, these were all Christians. Compare the artwork that they produced versus the liberal artwork that you see today that looks like distorted garbage. Just look at the results of godless San Francisco or Seattle, what they've done to their people. They have enslaved them in drugs and the upper tier gets everything and you have people living on the streets in tent cities everywhere. The period of time that history calls the scientific revolution, roughly 14th to 18th century, you know that was built all on Christianity. Science says, oh, Christianity hinders science. They, that is the most stupid statement that you could ever make. The greatest scientists and pioneers of modern science were all believers in God. Uh, Galileo, the father of modern phys, uh, physics, Sir Isaac Newton, the great physicist, mathematician, astronomer, whose fa famous work, uh, Princia Mathematica, is one of the greatest works in history of science. He said, the creator cannot be denied in the presence of such a magnificent creation. I could just continue to go on about that. But you, you need to understand it wasn't Rome or the Greeks who gave us these advancements. It was Christianity and Judaism that produced these things. According to 100 years of Nobel Prizes, a review of Nobel Prizes awarded between 1901 and the year 2000, Christians have won a total of 78% of all Nobel Prizes in peace, 72% in chemistry, 65% in physics, 54% in medicine, 49% uh, in economics and literature awards. Christianity has been a shade to the world. Praise God for the impact. So the parable of the mustard seed highlights the very tiny beginnings, but the massive impact on the world that it would make. Now let me take you to the second, third, the, the second parable here. And I confess, I thought about just giving you one today because I could have expounded on some things, but, but they tie together and I, I, I must do this. So let's read verse 33 as we look at one of the most confused parables in all the Bible. It says, another parable spake he unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leavened. Now, now, there's a lot of confusion on these things, and here's one reason why. He doesn't give an explanation on this parable or the previous one. He does on the first two, but the next five he doesn't give an, an explanation. All right? So, but what's interesting is the disciples don't ask for an explanation on this one. They, 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 they understood what he was saying. It had to be clear enough to where they're like, yeah, we get that. How do I know that? Look at verse 51. Jesus said to them, have you understood all these things? They say to him, yea, Lord. We understand it. 
He taught them how to understand and interpret the parables the first two times. The last five, he said, I want you to do your thinking and studying yourself. That's why I say people who don't study, uh, don't ask questions, don't study. That's everybody that's in 242, and a lot of you that are not, you're still studying every week, and I applaud you and praise God for that. But one thing, that 242 group, it, it, you're studying this week, amen? Raise your hand if you spent a little extra time this week studying, right? Look at that. Isn't that good? You, you were diving in the Word. You're like, man, i gotta, got to learn. And, and that, praise God you reap the benefit of that, and it fills your heart. I tell you, a revival will come to a church when God's people get into God's Word. That's where it starts. So let me walk you through this parable. A lot of misunderstanding on it. And let me say, there's really good guys on both sides of this um, issue. But I'm going to tell you why I think I'm right. Uh, so let, let's first walk through the parable, and then I'll give you a couple different ways people see this. Now, what is leaven? Leaven is yeast, which is a substance that is inserted inside of dough, and they need that. And it ferments the dough, allowing it uh, to rise, and it's used for baking purposes. And we all appreciate the impact of it. Here Jesus relates a very common reality to every home. I mean, he goes from like wheat in the field to now wheat in the home, right? That's being used for baking and how that works itself out. Here the woman mixes in a small amount of leaven into three measures of meal. Well, how much is three measures of meal? Well, to help you out, three measures of meal is compared in the Bible to an ephah. So now you understand. (laughs) And an ephah would equal about two gallons of flour or meal. Now, an average loaf would contain about three cups of flour. So you could make one loaf of bread off of that. Uh, Two gallons would be about 32 cups or so of flour. Uh, You could could make at least 11 loaves off of that. You could feed up to 100 people. Normally, one loaf would suffice one person for an entire day if that's all he ate. And so the woman only has a small amount of leaven and it's able to mix in the entire batch. Doesn't it seem pretty clear what he's talking about here? Interestingly, that's the same amount, the three measures of meal that's used in Genesis 18. Do you remember when, when Abraham saw the pre-incarnate Christ, I believe it was, because he's Lord and he's, he came down, he had the two angels with him, and he had Sarah go make a, uh, he said in Genesis 18, verse 6, Abraham hasted and went into his tent and said, Sarah, and he said, make uh, ready quickly three measures of fine meal needed and make cakes upon the hearth. And so uh, they presented that. Now, when you see this, there, there is a principle in the Bible of the first mention of something. And here we see the first time something like this is mentioned, three measures of meal, that, that it was something that had a positive connotation. It wasn't something negative. It wasn't something evil. It wasn't like Nebuchadnezzar made three measures of meal for, to worship his pagan deity here. This is, this is Abraham, father of the Jews. First time, uh, this, this encounter here, he's, he's needing up, uh, not the first time he had ever talked to God, but where the, the person of God is now in, in, in his presence. And, and it's a sign of uh, fellowship, giving hospitality, and, and it has a spiritual connotation as you look at that uh, comparison in Genesis 18 to where we're at now. So what does this parable mean? Uh, now, again, there's guys on both sides that some... Some see this as, as uh, I will give you the first view that people have. They see this as negative because they say leaven is a symbol of evil. Leaven is a symbol of evil. And some think the parable means that evil will infiltrate God's kingdom to where it will end up just penetrating all through the kingdom and work until the Lord comes back 
so that, that evil would be the penetrating work into the kingdom because they say leaven is a symbol of evil. Well, it's true the Bible consistently uses leaven to compare to evil works, like I'll give you a couple examples. Luke 12, verse 1, it says, In the meantime, when they were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch they trod upon another, he began to say unto his disciples, First of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So uh, he calls the, the, the Pharisees hypocrisy like leaven. Uh, it's, and, and the idea there is that, is that it's penetrating. Not that leaven in itself is evil, but that their, their teaching just spreads like a cancer. 1 Corinthians 5, 6, he says, Your glory is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? And there he's talking about a sinful individual that's inside the church that can pollute the whole body if you don't get that taken care of. So, But Paul here is, is also referring to sin being allowed into the church. It creates a pervasive effect. If you allow sin in the church, it can begin to corrupt the whole body if you don't deal with it. That's why it's got to be dealt with. Now, why do I believe leaven here does not refer to something evil, but rather refers to something good? My take on this is that uh, this is, leaven is not referring to sin. It's not referring to evil. And let me give you some reasons why. I believe what Jesus is talking about here is that the kingdom will start very small and in a hidden way, but it will permeate and work throughout until it overtakes everything in the culmination of the parousia, which is Christ's second coming. Now, why do I believe this refers to something good? Well, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven. If leaven is evil, it would be like saying the kingdom of heaven is like unto a prostitute. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a drag queen. Right? I mean, if it's just, if leaven is evil, then you could supplement it with any other type of evil that you would say. So how could you compare the kingdom of heaven like unto something that's evil? Secondly, every time Jesus introduces the kingdom of heaven, it's always with something good. The kingdom of heaven's like a sower. Well, the sower's a good guy. The kingdom of heaven, parable two, is like the sower. That's another good guy. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Well, that's something else that's good. The kingdom of heaven going on in verse 44 is like, a, like a, um, a treasure hidden in a field. Well, that's something beneficial. It's like a pearl of great price. That's good. It's like a, a net. Uh, well, there, that's a neutral item, but there's nothing wrong with a net. It's pulling in fish. That's a good item. Everything's good. So, so the kingdom of heaven in all other six parables is compared to something good, and is it only here now compared to something wicked? Also, in the previous parable, Jesus just got done speaking about the small kingdom and its incredible impact and influence, how it would start small and grow exceptionally big. It would seem logically clear that this parable would tie into it the same way as the previous parable about sowing in a field uh, with the enemy and the good sower tied into the first parable. So the first two tie together, the second two tie together, and we're going to see next time the third two tie together. And so um, leaven was not always something compared to evil. In fact, in those days, a mother, when her daughter, a Jewish bride, was married, on the day of this marriage, her marriage, she would take a little portion of her uh, leavened bread and give it to her daughter on the day of her wedding, and she would knead that into her dough on the first day so that the, the, the influence, the, 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 the family was basically inserting that dough and that influence and that leaven into that family, and, and they saw that as a positive thing. 
I believe this parable also speaks about the powerful, again, pervasive influence the gospel will have on the world. Though it starts small, it will be an unstoppable force. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Sin will not take over the kingdom. The kingdom will dominate the world. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. His kingdom will rule over all. It will continue to advance. And and listen, that's what the disciples expected, wasn't it? Were they expecting the kingdom to be defeated by sin? And if Jesus is saying the kingdom is going to be defeated by sin, don't you think they would have had a follow-up question? Lord, I got a question here. But when he's like, hey, this is going to grow, it's going to be greater than all, they're like, yep, that's what we expected. we, We get that one, Lord. You don't have to explain that. We understand that. That's what we were expecting. Your first two parables, we're like, what are you talking about? Like only like three quarter of them are not going to leave. Like, what is this? I thought all Jews were going to be saved. What, what do you mean all these? There's going to be false seeds. And what? And, and, but now they're like, now we're getting it. And, 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 and okay, this was a, after they're being so discouraged from the first two parables, this brings in great encouragement to them. Now, let me explain something else. When the Israelites came out of Egypt, God commanded them to eat unleavened bread for seven days. That symbolized you cut yourself off from the influence of Egypt. That's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's why they did that during Passover. But after the seven days, you know what they ate the rest of the year, the 358 other days? They ate leavened bread. You know why? Because leavened bread's better than unleavened bread. Y'all with me? You don't want that hard, crispy stuff. Like, yeah, I like that cushiness. That's great. You know, you want leaven in there. Isn't that great? You smell that bread. There were three feasts of the Jews, and I want to share this, and, and you need to stay with me here. This is a powerful reality that as non-Jews, sometimes we miss. The feasts of the Jews carry a significant reality in the spiritual connotation of the mystery revealed in the New Testament in Christ. There were three feasts of the Jews that correlate with Jesus in his death, burial, resurrection, and the launch of the church, and I believe they tie into this leavened bread. Now, when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified during the Jewish Passover on a Friday, the day commemorating the nation of Israel being delivered from Egypt, the the, the inauguration of the nation. They put the blood on the doorpost, on the lintel, and the death angel passed over them. That's a picture of those who come to Christ. When his blood's applied to your life, judgment passes over you. The Bible even calls him in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. So that's the first thing that happened on Friday when Jesus was crucified. That was Passover. It was going on right then. Second feast that happened was literally the Sunday morning Jesus rose from the dead. You know what that next feast was? It was called the Feast of first fruits. The Feast of first fruits. A farmer who wanted to determine if his crop would be good would go during that season into different parts of the field, pull out a small portion of the crop, and however good that crop was, signified how good the harvest was going to be. So how good were the first fruits of Jesus resurrected? And what does that say about how good the harvest is going to be? Is that you getting that? There was a third feast that happened 50 days after that. It's called the Feast of Pentecost. It's also known as the Feast of Harvest. And do you know what they made during that? They made loaves of leavened bread. 
So what do you think Jesus is talking about here? It's going to be an explosion. It's like leaven. And in their mind, it's like, well, leaven, usually like we, we, we want to cut off the influence from Egypt, but we do have the Feast of Leavened Bread. And what's that about? Oh, that's a, that's a celebration time. You know, when, when, you, when, you have, when you have wheat and it's all ground up, it's all separated. But when you, when you bake it, it all comes together and the body becomes one in Christ. And there was actually two loaves and one was during that time. And you have the Jew and the, and the Gentile, basically. But God would bring them together into being one as well. Now, uh, people say, well, what about this woman who hides the leaven into the dough? Well, this doesn't mean that, that she's doing something sneaky and evil. I mean, that was a good thing. It's like, yeah, that's what women do. It's not like some evil. It's not like the enemy going into the field sowing bad seed, right? Is it clear? It's like nobody would have thought that's so evil. She hid the leaven in the bread. Like, that's ridiculous. What, she's, what it's basically saying is uh, this will work. The kingdom of God will advance without physically seeing it advancing always. John 3, 8. Let me give you a couple passages. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, and cannot tell where it comes and whither it goes. So is every one born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit moves in ways that you cannot see and detect. Luke 17, 20. When, the, when he was demanded of the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God should come, they're like, when's it going to come? The kingdom's here. The kingdom's here, and they don't see it. Why? Because it's hidden. It's a spiritual reality. That's why he says, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. You're not going to see it. It's hidden. That's what he's talking about. That's what he's talking about. But uh, it'll permeate. It'll advance. This was the hidden aspect, the eternal reality. So I hope that helps. More I could say, time is gone. Clock stares at me the entire service. But let me conclude with some things here. Jesus came preaching the kingdom. And you need to understand today, his kingdom's coming. The physical kingdom will be established on this earth. And if you have not submitted to the king, you will be cast out of the kingdom. he, He will judge you. Today, God loves you. He extends grace. He extends salvation. He extends redemption. You could be in his kingdom forever. In the joy and the bliss of the shade. If Babylon and if America provided shade and blessing to so many nations, how much more will Christ provide blessing and eternal shade for all who come to him? If you're not saved today, why don't you come? Why don't you come and trust in Christ? Say, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And belief is not just intellectual, it's not just information, it is a surrendered will to Christ. You say, Jesus, you're Lord, I give my life to you, I commit my ways unto the Lord. It doesn't mean you're perfect, but you're willing to turn away from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn from your sin, turn to Christ, come to him. The door is open, the kingdom's available, the ark is still open, but the flood's coming. Judgment will come. Be saved today. The kingdom is also like a mustard seed. And I I would encourage you, friend, plant your life into God. Surrender all that you are to all that he is. Say, you know what? God, I want want my life to be used by you. Then, Then why don't you plead with him to take your mustard seed of life and plant it into the will of God, fully surrendered. And he's able to take that seed that's been that's been brought to his hand and plant you in ways that you could never have accomplished what what we would do on our own. 
today submit to him, surrender to him, give your life to him, plead with him to use your life. Listen, this world is dying and going to hell. Every single week, we need to be out sharing the gospel with somebody. if, If you haven't prayed for anybody this week, that is a sin. It is wrong. That's like, that's like having loved ones that are dying of cancer and it's not even praying for them. You know, the Old Testament, Samuel said, I will not sin in not praying for you, Saul. He saw it as a sin to not pray for them. And if we're not praying for people that are lost, we will not be telling them the gospel. Evangelism starts with praying for lost souls. And today, who's the last person? That's why in your, you have to have a prayer journal, put down people's names, begin to pray for them. My 242 group last Sunday night, I was so encouraged. We went around, I said, is there anything? Let's all share a prayer request. Every single guy in that group, all they did was share about people in their life that they're witnessing to that needs to be saved. I was so encouraged. I said, praise God. We continue to lift them up. I tell you, God will bring people to salvation as we continue to lift them up in prayer. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Let's be busy about kingdom work. Amen. Let's all stand. 